about the fragility of the financial markets here, Peter, because, you know, it was only, what, 2013 with the taper tantrum. Uh, interest rates then, the 10-year was around 3%. Now it's, uh, what, 1.4. And uh, this hasn't really played out yet because the Fed really hasn't started to fight inflation. They've just signaled that they would. Now, indeed, 2013, Ben Bernanke said he was going to fight, uh, you know, the, the other battle, and, and the, the markets really uh, collapsed. But they did recover quickly. But I, I don't think we've seen the last of uh, this shift in federal po- Federal Reserve policy as to how it affects markets. Okay, we have to end there, I'm afraid. We've run out of time, but thank you very much. You heard there, Barry Wood, our international economics correspondent over in Washington, D.C. Also, Brad Gibson, co-head of Asia-Pacific Fixed Income at Alliance Bernstein. And Nitin Dialdis, who's the chief investment officer at Mandarin Capital. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Asian markets still making solid gains following that uh, rally on Wall Street overnight. In Australia, the uh, ASX 200 up 0.7%. In Japan, the Nikkei 225 is up 0.9%. Stocks steaming ahead also in South Korea. The Cosby up 0.8%. Looks like the Hang Seng is going to add 100 points at the open. And in the commodities markets, uh, Brent crude oil, $75.31 a barrel. Gold is trading at $1,786 an ounce. That's it for me. Do please stay tuned to Radio 3. Back chat coming up with Jim Gould and Anna Fenton. The weather forecast uh, for today. Uh, it's going to be fine and dry. Maximum temperature around 23 degrees and then stay fine and dry in the next few days. Temperatures will rise slightly over the weekend. There is a strong monsoon signal in force right now. 19 degrees in Hong Kong. 66% relative humidity. 8.32, here's Todd Harding with the half-hour news. President Biden has told Vladimir Putin of his deep concern over Russia's build-up of forces near Ukraine and warned of strong economic sanctions in the event of military escalation. During their two-hour virtual summit, Mr Biden reiterated his support for Ukraine's sovereignty and territorial integrity. The BBC's Gary O'Donoghue has more. Russian state television broadcast the pleasantries at the start of today's call. In question, the sovereignty of Ukraine itself and the extent to which the US and the West is prepared to protect it. To that end, one thing does seem to have changed recently. Through weeks of diplomacy and intelligence sharing, the US appears to have corralled its allies in Europe to speak with one voice. That means any new tougher sanctions on Russian individuals, companies or sectors could be made to bite much harder than they have up until now. Mr Putin described the talks as frank and professional. Police in France say a Saudi man suspected of involvement in the murder of the Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi has been arrested at a Paris airport. But a Saudi official has said it's a case of mistaken identity. The 33-year-old suspect was detained as he was about to board a plane to Riyadh. The BBC's Hugh Schofield is in Paris. He's been taken into custody pending proceedings which would normally lead to an extradition uh, to Turkey. We know that the man was travelling on his own passport. There doesn't seem to be any attempt to conceal his identity. And his name was on this watch list, Interpol watch list, because he's one of, I think it's 15 or 20 people who were named after Khashoggi's murder in 2018 as having been part of the team who went out to Turkey from Saudi Arabia and allegedly carried out the killing at the consulate there. Mr. Khashoggi was killed inside the Saudi consulate in Istanbul in 2018 and his body dismembered. His fiancée has welcomed the arrest. 
And the winner of this year's Nobel Prize for Literature has described as inhumane the responses of Britain and France to migrants crossing the channel between the two countries. On the day he received his medal, the Tanzanian-born novelist Abdul Razak Gurnar said he didn't understand why British ministers referred to them as criminals and thieves when some in the government came from immigrant families themselves. It's as if this is a new thing that hasn't happened before. When Europe, of course, let alone other ages, but Europe over the last 50 or 60 years or so, or, or more, maybe 70 years, has had experience of wave after wave of refugees uh, who have turned out to be major contributors to, this, to the societies that has received them, important contributors. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Back Chatter. I'm Jim Gould and your co-host today is Anna Fenton. Good morning, Anna. Good morning, everybody. On today's programme, uh, private subsidised housing and takeaway packaging. New World Development has announced what it's called uh, Hong Kong's first subsidised private housing project with the aim of enabling young people to get onto the housing ladder. The developer is planning to sell 300 flats at half their market price to eligible first-time home buyers. The down payments for the units on offer in New Territories West will be as low as 5% of their value with uh, special mortgage arrangements being offered. For a 300 square foot unit, for example, the developer said the estimated cost would be $2.7 million. The home buyer would have to pay a down payment of 135000 and the mortgage will then be split into two phases. Uh, more on that soon. And from 9.15, we're looking into the environmental problems uh, caused by takeaway packaging. Let us know your thoughts. You can leave a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3, email us at backchat at rthk.hk, or give us a call on 233-88266. And this morning, uh, we welcome to our studio here in Kowloon Tong, uh, Shi Wing Ching, the founder and chief executive of uh, Centerline Group. And also on the line, we have uh, Vera Yoon, who's a lecturer at the Faculty of Business and Economics at the University of Hong Kong, and Hannah Jung, uh, head of valuation and advisory services at uh, Collier's uh, in Hong Kong. Uh, good morning to uh, all of our guests. Uh, uh, Xi Ching, uh, perhaps uh, if we can start with you, please. Mm -hmm. uh, so um, under this scheme, the buyer will draw a loan at 45% of the flat price, and that will be repaid over a period of up to 30 years, and then the remaining 50% can be repaid over a period of 10 years in one or a number of instalments. Uh, it sound, uh, on the surface of it, it sounds a little bit complicated, but it also sounds as though it might uh, be you know, a big help to first-time buyers who would otherwise find it very difficult to, mm. uh, to meet uh, down payments and uh, mortgage repayments. Of course, uh, it will be a big help to those people who want to enter into the housing market. But the number is only 300. It's not enough for the people. Uh, on the other hand, uh, it is said that the price will be only 50% of the market price. Uh, I think it's impossible uh, for a private developer to sell uh, uh, the flats at this level unless they are not necessary to pay the land premium 
I don't know whether this piece of land is an agricultural land mm -hmm. or land already mm -hmm. uh, allowed to build houses. If the land allowed to build houses will be very uh, variable, not many developers will be willing to use this kind of land as subsidized housing. That means they have to subsidize with the shareholders' money. Mm -hmm. uh, so mm -hmm. I believe this piece of land is still agricultural land. They ask the government to waive the land premium. Then they can sell the price at only the half of the market price. If it is in this way, it is not New World subsidizing the people. It is the government subsidizing people only through New World. So uh, that would be a completely different story if you look at it this way. So I'm sorry, Adrian, yeah. have to forgive me. <laughs> yeah, no, I hear you. So what you're saying, Mr. Xi, I think, is that this land, and, and as we know, New World has a big land bank of agricultural land, that maybe this is a rezoning situation. Now, is it the case that the government has already given the green light for the rezoning, do you think? I don't know. Or are uh, they just, I, you know... I think they are still negotiating. Mm, mm. And also, uh, the, you know, advantageous mortgage rates, does that mean that the developer is actually stepping into the banker role and will in fact be administering and benefiting from the mortgages as well? Uh, if the flat is sold at such a low price, I think the bank will have no difficulties in providing uh, the mortgage. And, and you said that this flat will be sold to the purchaser without any limitation. That means they got the full title of the land. Okay. For home ownership scheme, you only got maybe 60% uh, or 70% mm -hmm. of the title. You have uh, to pay the premium to the government in future. But uh, I, I learned that, uh, that the purchaser can get the full title. No need to uh, pay the premium uh, in future. So where, is there a catch here, Mr. Xi? Is that what you're saying? I, I can't catch up. Is, is there a catch? You know, is there something we're not seeing here? I think we probably need to know a little bit more about the arrangement mm, and, what, and what exactly is the government's yeah, I, I, involvement in the scheme. Mm, I think yes, what, uh, wait yeah. for the government yeah. to tell us. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, uh, well, uh, Hannah Jung from Colliers, uh, good morning to you. Good morning. So, in light of what uh, Xi Wing-Ching was saying, I mean, we're only talking about 300 units here. Um, mm -hmm. um, do you think, uh, if this was viewed as a pilot scheme, maybe uh, it could uh, go further and, uh, and have traction, or are there too many unknowables at the moment? I think, I think there are two different things. This one is what you are calling a private subsidized scheme. So government has a large scheme to accommodate public housing. And previously, Newark is not the first one to involve in this transitional housing. Other developers like Henderson, Tonongai, they are including Newark as well. They all donate their agricultural land to the government for eight to seven years 
and then government can build the public housing on top of those landed land. So in indirectly, developers were contributing to the public housing market. But this 300 unit, the differentiation is the scheme itself was developed by newer. So there are many people waiting in the public housing, um, subsidiary housing in, in the queue, but they, they can apply this one separately as a private scheme. I think that's the different concept here. So that gives more flexibility. People who were waiting very long time, they can still queue on the government line, but they can join this one if they are lucky enough to get in. Of course, 300 units are pilot, so it, it shouldn't be enough. But if they can continue to roll up and giving that lower down payment from uh, from only 5%, I think that will help the young family or younger generation to go into the housing market. So I think it's a good initiative. But once this is successful, we will see more and more um, participants from the developers as well. Hannah, is it really so cheap? Because looking at 5.47 million for 550 square feet, I don't know if that's net or gross, you know, you can buy a 700 square foot one floor of a Dingok in the New Territories for less than 5 million. <laughs> but Dingok, you have to be um, uh, the, a certain requirement to meet as a buyer. So I, I think it's slightly different. What do you, what do you mean the certain requirement? They're, they're sold on the open market. Yes, but you need to pay the premium. So I, I don't think that's the equivalent comparison. But if we look at the private market, like Yoho Town, right, in Vietnam, also New Territory West, and their price range from like 15000 above per square foot basis. So if this newer 300 units is translate into 9000 per square foot, it's obviously like 40 percent lower so which is a which is a good good pricing but as uh, dr chi mentioned this has to be based on the discounted premium from the government uh from the land perspective and then they will add the cost the developer what they are claiming is uh, previously they contributed the land to the public housing market but this time i'm building it uh, with my cost and i will sacrifice my profit to contribute to the, the end product so I think that's, uh, that's the difference here. Uh, just for the benefit of uh, listeners who may not know, uh, a dingok, which uh, Anna referred to, that's actually a village house in the New Territories uh, uh, built uh, under the um, small house policy. Um, uh, also with us is Vera Yoon uh, from the University of Hong Kong. Good morning to you. So uh, New World have described this as a pioneering, uh, a groundbreaking housing solution to support the younger generation. Uh, how do you see it? Well, I think in the past we have had um, some private sector participation schemes that um, the private developer helped develop some subsidized housing in the past, although it was um, quite short-lived. Um, but then this time I, I do think it's innovative because the uh, private developers, they kind of use their own land bank to do such thing and then they propose um, this plan and to see how the society proceeds. Um, but I think what uh, differs from Xi Wingqing said just now is like, I learned that they don't get the full title to property, right? It's like they still got like 50 to 60 percent of the um, title to um, the apartment and then um, if they are willing to pay the premium to the government 
because the government has paid a P, has waived the premium as he assumed, then he they can get a full title to um, you know freely transact that unit after a few years bar. I I think that still would follow the um, subsidized housing standard uh, regulations of procedures. Mm. That's correct. Yes. So the government will still claw back the land premium, is what you're saying? No, I think it is under negotiation because the norm of subsidized housing, for example, housing society, they only pay like one third of the land premium. So I don't think it's always, but if you said, oh, you know, it's for subsidized housing, it's for public good, um, then um, they could negotiate such a price. And if it is not negotiated, the developer may not actually you know, get it done because they will have to do this uh, bargaining and negotiation in the process of getting it approved. So I, I think it's just if you ask them to pay more premium, they would raise the price a bit. Yeah. Uh, can I just quote you from their own press release? It says that a 100% ownership right from the start exists. So it's a 100% title. Um, not from what I learned, uh, but, you know, we will still wait for a uh, newer update. Well, so this is, this is their own, their own materials. You, you okay. So, sorry, uh, sorry, um, uh, Hannah Jo? Yeah. Yeah? You were saying? So, it's 100% ownership right, it means that you own the flat 100%, but you see, 10 years later, if you want to sell at the open market, then mm. you have to add the premium to sell at the market value. Mm. If not, you can also transfer that discount to the unit price to the another eligible person. So you follow a very similar public housing uh, scheme. Mm. Mm. Uh, okay. Um, so, Shi uh, Wing Ching, mm. would you expect that if this does prove popular, then more developers would be inclined to do something similar? Uh, I think this kind of innovative initiative will be welcomed by the public. But in the commercial sector, some people will worry if in future uh, the private sector has to take up some of the role of the government. Uh, because under the one country, two system, uh, business people in Hong Kong uh, need only to do two things. One is to observe the law and one is to pay the tax. Uh, they have no role in providing housing for the public. And I think relying on the private sector won't solve the problem because the problem is too big for the private sector. It's the government who have the less responsibility for helping the people in Hong Kong. Uh, uh, and their impact, uh, this kind of uh, private sector providing ho uh, subsidized housing won't have a real big impact on the problem. You need the government uh, to provide more land, then the price can be lower uh, to the affordable level. Only 300 units or even uh, San Hong Kai, Henderson, Chang Chang, all come in to help, won't solve the problem. Okay. Uh, well, here's a message on our Facebook. 
this from Kim says, uh, government land premiums to exclamation marks. Isn't this the whole point? The reason for the high prices we have is because of the extraordinary extraordinarily high premiums. Isn't it about time the government and the developers work together to offer cheaper properties? It's not a subsidy. They should also work together to offer a wider range of reasonably priced rent-controlled properties for the future of Hong Kong and its people. Developers' margins can be maintained or reduced marginally if the government is willing to forego or reduce significantly their main source of income. Why don't they just become a landlord? Uh, uh, and get their cash flow from reasonably priced rental properties. Um, uh, uh, how about that, uh, Vera Yoon? So um, the land premiums are the, <laughs> the, the the main obstacle here. Yeah, I think um, there's no result of the negotiation yet, and I think the government still takes some time to respond to this. Um, so that the success of it would depend on how much land premium could be waived. So if not, I don't think the developer is going to do it at a loss. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Hannah Jung, what do you reckon? I think Hong Kong, yes, the land premium or land sales program has been the fundamental issue to increasing price in the market. Over the, like, say, for example, industrial market, the industrial land released by government they increased like 80% compared to 10 years ago. So that shows how much price going up. And not to say about residential, every every month there's a land auction or tender by government and developers bid for it. I think that's um, a principle from the government. They want to follow demand and supply uh, natural movement to control the price. So if the government cannot um, control the land premium or land price itself, I think they can consider to release more so that the supply demand can be balanced. I, I think Hong Kong government situation, they do not want to influence or manipulate the price itself. So that I think only they can do is by supplying more land. Mm-hmm. OK, uh, Xi Ching, you were saying that the, uh, the solution is the ha- in the hands of the government rather than the developers. Uh, but mm. there, there have been uh, reports uh, earlier this year that uh, the developers were coming under pressure from the, the central authorities mm-hmm. uh, uh, to do more to help to solve the, the housing problem uh, here. Um, um, how much do you think that might be a factor in the, in the, in the thinking of our, our main property developers yeah. now? Yeah. Uh, I don't know whether the central government have give pressure to the developers. But uh, the social norm is that uh, commercial sector uh, need to take up more social responsibility. Uh, but I myself do not like to see this kind of situation happening in Hong Kong. Hong Kong is still a capitalist society. Uh, uh, I think we should let the people in the business field to decide whether uh, they would like to participate in this kind of subsidized housing. It should not be their responsibility to do so. They can have their own choice. Mm -hmm. I don't want to see one day uh, a media reporter come to the business people and ask them what they have done in this area. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so Hannah Jung, uh, we should leave it to market forces. Yes, and I think from the government side, they already reduced their land premium arrangement for like public housing purpose for Hong Kong Housing Society projects since 2019. So, uh, for example, domestic portion of the subsidized sales of flat, they used to charge a premium, like they, the land price was uh, 1000 they charged 50% of it. Now they reduced to 30%, one-third of the full market value. So... I think it's uh, it's always coming to the fourth side. I think public side they are working with the different. Um, uh, they they try to build by their own, but the government also need to find the suitable land because they cannot cut the mountain to build the public housing. Mm-hmm. So the the pub, uh, private sector they continue to donate their land bank at the North Territory or wherever possible and work together with the government. I think that can be one of the um, sustainable solution going forward. Well, you say sustainable, but these are greenfield sites once again, aren't they? Greenfield site, um, I think there is uh, two two angle. One is the public housing requirement, but also the conservative. Greenbelt doesn't mean that it's uh, really green. It can be some kind of a low density housing already existed. So those land can be identified and um, private land or developers are sitting on those men, I think it, it can be negotiable. Mm. Uh, I mean, this scheme is being uh, put forward as a way for young people to be able to uh, get onto the housing ladder to enter the property market. Uh, um, um, uh, Mr. Sheed, can you think of uh, other ways that that could be facilitated? Uh, I think the main problem in Hong Kong is the uh, government not providing enough land uh, for the residents, uh, the GDP per capita uh, in Hong Kong is among the highest in the world. So, not many similar developed uh, area have housing problem like Hong Kong. It's all because of the land value is too high. Uh, all most of the people in Hong Kong. Uh, can afford to pay the construction costs and the developers' reasonable profit. So if the government is willing to give up the land premium uh, by providing more land to the market, I think most of the people in Hong Kong uh, can afford to own their residence. Okay, okay. Uh, 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 Vera Yoon, would you agree with that? Well, that can increase the supply and if supply is sufficient there's no need for you know building you know sandwich class or subsidized housing mm-hmm. or you know we have some urban renewal authorities um first uh, time homeowner um also subsidized housing the problem of this is the hong kong government relies quite a lot on the premium of land sales for their fiscal income it's like in the past maybe if it's a low year, maybe 15%. If it's a high year, it's like 20% of the fiscal income comes from land sales. So, so that uh, we need another plan for its fiscal income. Um, if it's going to, you know, release more land without getting that much premium paid. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think the priority is right here? Uh, I mean, there are so many people uh, still living in substandard uh, 
subdivided apartments uh, waiting for public housing. Um, I mean, should that not be the priority now, um, increasing the supply of public housing and shortening the waiting list? Well, but then I said developers, I mean, if they are going to participate in building uh, public housing, it would be the subsidized one because they are not the ones who build public rental housing. Mm. And they would have uh, somehow higher standard and better quality houses. So I think if you're talking about public rental housing, it ultimately relies on the government um, competence. And I mean, in the past 10 years, the average output of uh, public housing, including subsidized housing, is only 14,000 per year. But the government said they're going to make it 30,000 uh, in the next 10 years per year. So it's like um, it's like half of the capacity. Uh, competence short in reaching that goal and also the government has laid down a 10-year like long-term steering committee that goal uh, from 2015 onwards and then for the first two 10 years the government only met the target uh, by 56 and 57 percent respectively which means uh, the government um, ran short in about 40 percent of the public housing it should have been so it's a lot in efficiency in it and I think the participation of private developers actually help to make it more efficient because I mean if they want to meet that line in construction they would do it but for the government you know they just drag on and on and on. Okay okay thanks so well we've got to take a short break uh, for the news we'll be back at three minutes past um, a quick look uh, at uh, the weather before we do oh by the way we have to say uh, thank you and uh, goodbye for now to Hannah Jung head of valuation and advisory services at Colliers uh, our other guests uh, can stay with us uh, for a bit longer thankfully um, the, the weather fine and dry uh, the outlook uh, mainly fine and dry in the next few days it's currently 19 degrees humidity 62 percent Member of Saudi Arabia's military guard. Key questions about Mr. Hashogji's death remain unanswered, including whether it was officially ordered by Saudi Arabia and the whereabouts of his remains. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Back to back chat with Anna Fenton and me, Jim Gould. Uh, and this morning, we're talking about uh, what's uh, being described as uh, Hong Kong's first uh, subsidised private housing project. Uh, uh, this is being uh, organised by uh, New World Development uh, with the aim of... Uh, enabling young people to get onto the housing ladder. Uh, we have uh, with us uh, Shi Wing Ching, uh, the founder and chief executive of uh, Centerline Group, and also on the line Vera Yoon, a lecturer at the Faculty of Business and Economics at the University of Hong Kong. Um, uh, we were just talking before the break uh, about, uh, about public housing, the public housing building programme. Um, um, Vera Yoon, did you have a, a point to finish or, or did I cut you off? Did I cut you off prematurely? No, I just finished it. Okay, okay. okay. Uh, Anna, Anna, you were asking um, Xi Jinping uh, just now. Mr Xi, yes, this whole long-running issue of public-private relationships with public housing, we've seen years of promises that have not been delivered on with the number of public housing units. What is the issue with this failure to, uh, to meet the public housing need? What do you think is, is the reason for the failure and what is the solution in your mm -hmm. view? Uh, I think uh, one of the reasons is that uh, the government 
face a lot of objection in the uh, past few years. So uh, they were unable to implement their original plan. Now, I think they can solve the problem in the Legislative Council. Uh, and everything can be speed up in future. So that's good news then, isn't it? Mm, that's good news in some way. Uh, I think everything can be quicker. Uh, like uh, they are going to uh, redevelop uh, the old city area. Uh, the plan uh, now is much bigger than before. Uh, of course, uh, I don't know whether the government uh, can take up such a big job. You think it's beyond the scope of their ability? Mm, at least uh, the size and the volume is much bigger than before. They had never done such a big job. So what would be the solution? Take something like the Kuaichung cargo terminal, which has been talked about as being a suitable site for redevelopment for housing for decades now. If that were to be... Uh, this uh, is more complicated because it is not in the hand of the government. Uh, of course, uh, Kuaichung terminal uh, is close to the urban area. Uh, it will be more welcomed by the public than those in the northern territories. That's why I ask, because there's no public objection to, to that mm. type of project, right? Mm. Uh, but you have to compensate the operator. That will be very expensive. Mm. Um, and Vera Yoon, do you think there may now be more pressure on the administration to look at alternative sources uh, of income, uh, alternative sources to um, land premiums? Um, if uh, you know pressure mounts, as it is almost certain to do, um, to improve the housing situation and uh, increase supply and you know improve uh, living standards. Well, their plan is to develop uh, the northern metropolitan and also um, the land house reclamation um, plan. Yeah. So that will provide a lot of land. And even though the price may not be that high, but if the volume is sufficient, they can still you know, get enough um, fiscal income from selling the land. But so Vera, that, these are long, long-term projects, aren't they? The, 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 the housing need is now. Yes, sure. But then, like, we have um, pressurized the government for solar and saying that they are not able to meet the target. And the problem of the administration, I think, is because for housing planning in Hong Kong, in order to go through all the procedures and administration, it takes, like, five years. But our administration is, like, five-year term. So for everything this term they plan, um, that would be the results of, you know, the next term. And then they are not that motivated in doing so because they cannot claim credit for what they have done in their own term. So I think nowadays if they said, um, you know, they have the political system, we see a paradigm shift there. And there would be more monitoring and accountability from the central government uh, on whether they can meet the target of, you know, public housing and also livelihoods. And that could help, maybe. 
Okay, well, the, the mainland, Beijing has said that has been quite critical of the developers, hasn't it? It has accused them of monopolistic practices. Do you think that, that there will be some uh, improvements after that? Well, I think uh, it's very hard to predict what the central government would do because I think lately um, it, it's very unpredictable. But um, this initiative sounds like a response to the call for common prosperity and share wealth too. So um, it's like, you know, the private sector has to do more on social responsibility and so on. But then I, I still agree with Stephen Cheng that you know, it's the mutant treatment of the dogs that, you know, private companies, if they make money, it means they make the market more efficient. And if they pay tax, they follow the law and rules. You know, that's their responsibility. And they shouldn't be using shareholders' money to do things that do not help the company process because it makes the whole world inefficient. So I, I do think this project, okay, if, if that's the case, this project should help their shareholders' value rather than, you know, a pure, you know, uh, charity kind of act. But is it not the common prosperity idea in action? Uh, yes, I do think it's, uh, it's in response to that too, but it's just, the free market advocated, they would not agree that much with this. But I think nonetheless, if they're going to um, operate within the Chinese China area, and I think for some of the developers, they were already forced to donate in the mainland. So another way now. Sorry, sorry. Uh, I don't know whether this piece of land is owned by New World Development Company or owned by the boss of the company. If it is owned by the boss of the company, I think they, the boss have the right to donate their land for subsidized housing. But if this piece of land belong to the listed company, then I don't know whether they need the approval of the ordinary shareholder to use this for subsidized housing because for those people who buy the share of New World, they expect the board of director to earn more profit for them, mm. not to do the subsidized housing. They need to have an uh, EGM to get the shareholders' approval for doing so. It's being done uh, in conjunction with its uh, not-for-profit social housing uh, enterprise uh, uh, new World uh, Build for Good. Mm. So not under New World Company. Mm. 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 Okay. Um, email here from uh, Alan says, uh, you cannot rely on a developer to reduce the price of a unit voluntarily despite uh, what New World has said. If the land is agricultural and a modification is under discussion with the government, then to ensure there is a price reduction, it would have to be written into the new lease. This can be done on the, uh, uh, sorry. This can be done, and the premium would be reduced uh, depending on what price was quoted for the units in the lease, and then subsequently offered to the market. Uh, Mr. Shi, do you do you, you you follow that? Yeah. Yes. Uh, I think if you let the government know what price you are going to sell then they can determine the premium you need to pay. But uh, it's not very clear uh, what, they, what price they are going to sell. And for subsidized housing, 
I think it's better under one skin. Uh, otherwise, it will be unfair to the public. So some have this developer uh, with uh, only 50% of the market price, some uh, maybe 75%, then who have the shall have the right to have the benefit to the lower price by lucky draw or by the choice of the developer. Mm. It will be very complicated. Mm. Mm. Uh, very Yoon, uh, there was mention just now of common prosperity, but that, of course, is a socialist concept, and uh, that's fine for mainland China, but we're supposed to practice the capitalist system in Hong Kong, aren't we? So uh, is, that, is, that, <laughs> is that kind of irrelevant to our circumstances? same country and then they have Two quite some stake in the mainland China. They have development projects. So I mean what they do in Hong Kong also, you know, help what they do in China. I think it goes together. Like you can separate them nowadays. But then if it's just their private initiative, nobody forced them. I mean it's I, I think it's still good to have more supplies of subsidized housing. It, it's their choice. So and, and then if um, they don't take advantage of the taxpayer or of the government. I think it sounds okay. How do the lucky 300 buyers get chosen? I think um, it's going to let others, uh, statutory body, like housing society to choose for themselves because they couldn't deal with the interest problem. Like, if they are going to choose, then the public would not trust them in that. And in order to build the uh, legitimacy, they would allow, you know, outsiders the more fair, you know, third party to do the allocation rather than themselves. And also they have means, so, so they need somebody to do this anyway. Right. So, Mr. Shi, do you think this is the first of many such initiatives or a, a one-off? Uh, I think uh, some other developer will do so sooner or later, but it's impossible to expect them to do in a very large scale. Uh, for New World, it's only a 300 unit. Comparing with the need of the society, it's uh, just a very small part. Hmm. Okay, well, thank you very much uh, for joining us for our main uh, discussion this morning. Uh, uh, that was Shi Wing Ching, the founder and chief executive of the Centerline Group. And thanks very much to Vera Yoon, a lecturer at the Faculty of Business and Economics at the University of Hong Kong. And uh, before nine o'clock, we heard from Hannah Jung, uh, head of valuation and advisory services at Colliers in Hong Kong. And so for the... Uh, oh, actually, uh, just a message here on our Facebook page... Uh, from Barbara says, uh, in fact, uh, uh, village houses are a big problem in Hong Kong. Uh, it should be dealt with uh, as soon as possible. How many villages house houses are there all over Hong Kong? How many of them are illegal? Uh, how big a place uh, have they occupied all over Hong Kong? I think that's probably an issue for another day, Anna. Uh, well, yes. Well, uh, recent legal, legal developments, they're, they're, they're all set to continue, I think. Mm -hmm. OK. Um, so for the last um, quarter of an hour or so of this morning's programme, we're going to be turning our attention to our second topic. Um, and that is a, a pretty serious uh, environmental uh, issue um, because... Um, uh, a, a study has found that uh, people here used 
actually a staggering figure, almost uh, six billion uh, items of packaging for takeaway orders uh, last year. Um, that was up from, I think, a figure of uh, 3.94 billion in 2019. Of course, the, uh, the pandemic and people staying at home and everything, that's reduced, uh, sorry, greatly increased uh, demand for uh, takeaways and food delivery and home delivery and so on. Um, we're joined now on the line by... Uh, Hannah uh, Van Turno, who's a senior advisor of the ADM Capital Foundation, uh, which produced this study. Uh, she's the lead author of the Eat Without Waste report. Uh, Helga uh, Van Turno, uh, good morning to you. Good morning. Thanks very much for joining us. And thank you um, for having me. So um, this sounds uh, really really very serious. I mean, we're talking about a, a huge amount of uh, disposable items being used once and then thrown away, aren't we? The number is big. That actually doesn't even include all the peripherals. So the number that you're mentioning only refers to the cups and containers themselves. That mm. doesn't include all the chopsticks, the straws, the stirrers, the bags that come with our takeout habits. Mm. Mm. So, uh, Helga, what do we do about this? I have tried repeatedly over the last few months with my little takeaway coffee cup to go to, you know, various branded coffee outlets and put, ask them to put the coffee in my cup and they refuse. So citing COVID or any other kind of reasons. What do we do about this? They won't help. Uh, yes. So the, I would say persistence will help. Uh, what you see here in Hong Kong especially is that there's a big difference between the larger chains and the small independent coffee shops, if we have it specifically about coffee, uh, the independent ones are more likely to readily accept your reusable cup, your bring-your-own uh, cup. The larger chains tend to have stronger uh, what's called standard operating procedures. They have to handle things in a certain way. And so when things have changed over because of COVID or the threat of COVID, uh, it's harder for them to change it back. What I've also observed with the larger chains is that there's quite a bit of an inconsistency though nevertheless um, uh, between the different outlets um, and what I personally try to do is always engage with the staff on why it is important that they also should escalate this to their managers um, that that the rest of the world has moved on has despite the actual presence of COVID they have been able to develop procedures to handle bring your own uh, cups safely. But it's not just it's not just the cups, is it? I went in with my sandwich box the other day. They were making sandwiches. I said, "Could you put it in my box?" No, nope. had to be wrapped in the paper. How, how do you deal with this? Yeah. So what we'll plan on doing uh, going forward, based on on the results of our of our research, is to write up some more concrete guidance for how food and beverage outlets can handle this uh, to give them ideas for how to how to do it safely how to do it how to integrate it in a high speed environment that we have mostly in hong kong uh, in a lot of especially at lunchtime places um, there obviously is an, an opportunity for doing this at a larger scale as well as you uh, probably well aware there's a public consultation that has taken place over the summer so the government is planning on regulating, uh, not just any any random policy, but actually regulating this type of packaging. The proposed or uh, type of policy is a ban, is a complete ban on plastic uh, containers. What we'd like to see is to accompany that with 
a broader set of policies, for example, on, on the point that you mentioned, you know, can they go out to the food and beverage outlets and have help them structurally also help them uh, shift to alternatives, not just to another single use one? But it's not just the, the, the suppliers. It's surely it's on us as the consumers to actually remember to take a cup with us or a plastic spoon so that we're yeah. not always getting... Absolutely. That's why we're also dedicating quite a bit of uh, space in the report to the psychology behind habit forming, because a lot of this is part of, of, of a habit. The way, same way you would not forget your keys, uh, other than occasionally, you would not forget your house keys in the morning. Uh, taking your reusable cup or your reusable container can also be part of this. Nevertheless, there's op opportunities or there's moments in your, in your daily life where it's just not uh, feasible to to do this and that's why we think there's also a really important place for uh, centralized reuse systems where you do not have to bring your own container you can lend it uh, you can sorry you can borrow it uh, from from a system that makes them available this is particularly powerful in let's say semi-closed systems for example in office environment Quite a bit of uh, office spaces here in Hong Kong are centered around a food court or an area that offers quite uh, some options for for lunchtime um, consumption, and they would be particularly suitable for installing a centralized reuse system, so that the burden is not so much uh, on the consumer in terms of remembering to bring their container. That is actually, from an environmental perspective, uh, according to our analysis, also the most powerful um, option. However, it requires infrastructure, it requires a centralized administration. So we think that the overall opportunity for Hong Kong is uh, smaller than for bring your own cups. Yeah, in fact, your report recommends um, a number of um, measures to improve the situation, including, as you say, uh, bring your own food container. Um, but a large part of this uh, problem is people ordering takeaways Right, and, and having takeaways delivered to their home or to the office uh, in uh, packaging which is used only once and then thrown away. So, uh, like you say, we're making some progress on um, doing away with plastic packaging, but, um, like, paper packaging, I mean, that can only be used once, can't it? I mean, that's, that's not a sort of recyclable issue if it's had, uh, you know, if it's been used to deliver food. To, well, yes, yeah. yes and no. Um, this is one of the discussions we have in the report. If you, we do think that you should address all single-use packaging, not just the plastic ones, because we don't really want to see a shift. We want to see um, a change over to reusable systems. But if you're going to, uh, you have single-use uh, materials. Um, at the moment, there is no composting infrastructure in Hong Kong that can actually accept right. uh, containers. So if they go to Opark, for example, our, our anaerobic digester, which is um, uh, an alternative to composting that's very, very high performing, if you take it there, it will get filtered out again. It will get sorted out. It will end up in the landfill after all. It will not go through the actual process. It will not become compost. And as long as we don't have that available, the compostability claim, if true at all, and it is true for some of the products on the market, but not, not for all of them, is actually less helpful. Yeah, because it, it's compostable, but it will not get composted here in Hong Kong. Now, um, what we did uh, test and, and discovered in the, in the process um, of writing this report when we looked into this compostability issue is that some of these containers are actually very well recyclable. Um, and we have a plant, a plant here in Hong Kong that can handle them, Mill Mill, which also takes our liquid cartons, you know, what we 
tend to call a tetra pack, um, they can handle other types of, of hard to recycle uh, paper-based or fiber-based products. These are the kind of waxed cups? And For things, example, right? waxed cups, cups with a thin liner, um, the uh, all of these types of products that have a, some amount of plastic in it but are largely fiber-based, they can handle them. Now, the complexity, of course, for food products, um, other than a teacup, teacup is quite innocent, uh, the one you have there in your hand will be rather clean. <laughs> uh, it's waxed, though. It's yeah. waxed, yes. But, um, so it should not, here in Hong Kong, it should not go into the normal paper stream. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the food packaging is, of course, uh, soiled. It's dirty after consumption. And it does need to be cleaned. And this is something, so if you look at the report's results, one of the things we also propose is to massively scale up recycling of food containers, whether it's the paper-based or the plastic-based ones, especially polypropylene is very easy to recycle. The infrastructure exists here in Hong Kong, but people need to be aware of it and the recycler, uh, the containers need to be cleaned before people add them to the recycling stream. What's polypropylene? Helping? It's a type of plastic. It's a very common resin so the there's a lot of markets for recycled polypropylene it's a it's it's a easy to, relatively easy to recycle um is that polystyrene polymer no polystyrene the ones you're thinking of there is probably the foam boxes yeah that like we still fish, have a lot of the fish boxes that yeah are everywhere yeah the face the the cooler boxes is, is one part of the issue with polystyrene in hong kong the other one is the a lot of takeout containers still are uh extent it's called extended polystyrene um a lot of people call it styrofoam. Again, it's a, it's a brand name. It's not the, uh, the actual name. And um, those are technically recyclable. There is a recycler also here in Hong Kong that could do it. Uh, but it's a lot harder to do. Most of the recyclers do not want to receive that material. And it's there's a bit of a perception that these containers are cheaper, which is one of the reasons why a lot of uh, smaller um, uh, outlets uh, stick with them. There's also the fact that here in Hong Kong we have a very specific uh, dine-out uh, diet around um, lots of hot, oily foods, which is a lot more complex than we see in, in other markets. So that's the typical lunchbox. That's the typical lunchbox. hot noodles mm. with yeah, with spicy sauce, or hot sauce, um, like literally hot. Um, and and so those are hard to clean uh, as well. Yeah, but we do need to clean them if we want to add them to the recycling stream. Mm. Okay, um, uh, an email here from a listener, Marcus, is also accompanied by a, a, a picture of a, a big pile of plastic, plastic bottles of plastic trays and and uh, uh, forks and spoons and cups. And he says, uh, here is just less than a week and a half of single-use plastic in my quarantine hotel. Just the regulations being that uh, hotels must supply cutlery would cut this down massively. How about uh, cardboard box uh, trays for meals? Um, yeah, uh, ha- have you found that, um, Helga, that uh, quarantine hotels are using an awful lot of uh, single-use plastic? Uh, absolutely. And um, however sad the quarantine situation is, it does make me happy to see that it's built quite a bit of awareness amongst people that were in quarantine because it's the first time you were so confronted with the packaging aspect of your of your consumption, right? It doesn't just get whisked away uh, as much as if you live in your home. Uh, actually, some hotels have attempted to start a recycling program uh, and some of them have been um, admonished by government that is really not allowed. Uh, what you would need to happen is that you hang on to your containers until the end of your quarantine and then 
uh, bring him to a community, a green community uh, location, for example. That's the only way at the moment to, to really get it recycled. Anyway, you have nothing else to do in your hotel room, so you might as well clean, clean your container. Um, but uh, what we do see is that because of this concern and because of a lot of hotel, quarantine hotel guests having spoken out and, and you know, petitioned their uh, hotel management to do something about it, there are hotels that are shifting to giving reusable utensils, for example, because that is something that definitely can be uh, avoided. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Surely okay. they could just give you metal knives and forks. Exactly. Well, I suppose they have them anyway, don't they? So, yeah, 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 but it's something that from the beginning, that, uh, like one of you mentioned convenience and, and, and ease of use, mm. and you know that's, that's absolutely part of it as well, right? These procedures get developed. They probably got developed in a rush, and then nobody questioned them again until now when, when the hotel guests themselves say, guys, we can do better. Yeah, I, be I believe a, a number of quarantine hotels uh, uh, do offer that if you, if you mm -hmm. ask for it as well. So yeah. good, very good. Okay, well, thank you very much uh, for joining us uh, on the programme this morning. Uh, Helga uh, Van Turnout, who's a senior advisor of uh, ADM Capital Foundation and the lead author of the Eat Without Waste report. Thank you very much for coming into our studio this morning. Um, and a quick look at the weather before we go to the news summary and morning brew. Oh, and thanks very much to you, of course, Anna, You're our co-host for today. Uh, and thanks to our listeners and everybody who wrote in. So the weather is going to be uh, fine and dry today with a top temperature of around 23 degrees, uh, fresh east to northeasterly winds, occasionally strong offshore. The outlook uh, mainly fine and dry in the next few days. Temperatures will rise slightly over the weekend. It's currently 20 degrees, humidity 62%. As the risk of severe disease and death from COVID-19 increases with age, vaccines are highly recommended for the elderly. Common side effects are usually mild and temporary. Experts advise that those who have had flu shots before can safely receive COVID-19 vaccines. Even if you have a disease, you should get vaccinated as long as your condition is stable. Just staying home doesn't mean you're free from the risk of infection. Protect yourself. Get vaccinated early. New summary with Todd Harding. The Honorary Chairman of the Small and Medium Enterprises Association, Danny Lau, says the government should select from an existing quarantine exemption group when it comes to choosing which business people should have priority for quarantine-free travel with the mainland. Speaking on RTHK's Hong Kong Today programme, Mr Lau said some business people had, from April 2020, already applied for a quarantine exemption certificate from the Trade and Industry Department. He said those who had made use of it should be first in line. President Biden has told Vladimir Putin of his deep concern over Russia's build-up of forces near Ukraine and warned of strong economic sanctions in the event of military escalation. During their two-hour virtual summit, Mr Biden reiterated his support for Ukraine's sovereignty and territorial integrity. Mr Putin described the talks as frank and professional. And police in France say a Saudi man suspected of involvement in the murder of the Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi has been arrested at a Paris airport. We'll have more news at 10 o'clock. It's time right now on Radio 3 to say good morning to Phil Whelan and his guests on The Morning Brew. Hello. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Hi. Good morning. And good morning to you too. How are you doing? Excellent. Hello. Hello. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? Good morning. Fine, thank you. Thanks for inviting me to your show. Thank you. Good morning. Good to see you. On your radio and live online, this is The Morning Brew.
welcome to Wednesday here on The Morning Brew. All the way through until one o'clock. Because it's Wednesday, that means it's Classical Music Day with composer and conductor Colin Touchin. Join him at 10.40 as usual to celebrate the birthdays of a handful of composing legends, which he'll introduce with the help, of course, of some wonderful music. We've got Sibelius. We've got a chap called Ponthe, which is rather unfortunately spelt Ponce. Get that one out of the way, shall we? And a couple of others you might not have remembered, but wonderful music across the board. After 11.30, I may get a chance to catch up with Philippe Devar from RTL France. He's very busy as we speak, middle of the night in France, doing a deadline. But fingers crossed, and Chris Watts is away for a few weeks doing his thing. So today at 12.10, singer-songwriter Matt James returns by popular demand to invite you to a big Christmas gig, which is called Rock and Noel. It's going to feature a few really good local groups. It's happening this Friday in Wan Chai. Of course, we'll be hearing some of Matt's own Christmas music too today. And this. Sad 